Hello and welcome to the very first episode of Somerset Stories, the podcast which explores the lives of the people that live, work and create in Somerset. I'm Lewis Webb and I'm inviting you to join me as I meet some of the inspiring, creative and successful individuals and families that make this beautiful county their home. My guest today is writer, musician and watchmaker Tom Corneal. Tom is also currently writing a book about the Southwest Coast Path and launching his own podcast, tackling a wide range of mental health issues. So it's safe to say he's not only multi-talented, but also very busy. Tom, welcome to Somerset Stories. Hello. Hi, Lewis. How are you? I'm really good, thank you, mate. Yeah. Um, yes, it, it, that feels like um, a question that has requires a little bit more thought than it did before recent months with lockdown and things like that it's um i think we've all got quite complex feelings on how we're doing at the moment but no i'm really i'm really good the this sun's good. shining i've got lots of stuff done today that i needed to so yeah it's good times excellent well so i feel like i need to start uh this podcast with an apology which um is a strange place to start but the first time we spoke i assumed wrongly uh, that you are not originally from somerset that's right yeah um my my i have a big irish family uh but my parents and uh, and my sisters in fact all came from manchester uh which i think you picked up a little bit on there's a, a slight twang in my voice occasionally to that effect but no i was born and raised in taunton so and i moved to uh to bath for university and have been here ever since so yeah i'm i'm a fully fledged somerset person excellent what what was it that brought your parents to this part of the world they wanted a different pace of life really um my mum and dad had three children very young my sisters and the pace of life up they they lived um it's just really really busy up there and they found it difficult to have time for themselves and the space that they wanted and they just fancied a break so um they, after a bit of research, thought, let's try the West Country out. My dad had, um, my dad was a haulage contractor. He's retired now. Uh, so he, he drove a lorry all over the country on different construction jobs. And so he'd seen a lot and he fell in love with um, with the Southwest. And so they, they came down here for a, a slightly quieter pace of life. Great. And uh, what was life like in the Corneal House back in those days? Uh, noisy um really it was it was kind of hectic it was lots of fun um so my sisters are there's three of them they're very close together in age the youngest one is 11 years older than me so i sort of as a child was surrounded by uh, teenage girls and their boyfriends and lots of loud music and my mum and dad who were also heavily into music and there'd be tvs on and cooking happening and um and all sorts so it was um it was great it, it was a very <laughs> a, a household full of love and music and um and it was a little bit crazy lots of parties and things so 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 music has been kind of part of your life from day one then yeah absolutely yeah it's um it's always it's always been there my dad is a absolutely massive fan of anything from the 60s and and really anything that's got guitars in it primarily for my dad um my mum's tastes were a little bit more varied um perhaps but she 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 loved uh she loved to sing my mum had a lovely voice 
um, and uh, she's not with us unfortunately anymore. Uh, but she loved um, a crooner, loved something she could really sing her heart out to around the house, so she'd always be singing. Um, and my sisters, well, whatever was going on in the day, there was a lot of Madonna and Erasure and Bronski Beat and lots of other really good electro-based pop going on in that house, which is no bad thing. That against the backdrop of the Beatles and the Kinks and things, it was a good good time. Yeah, so you're, you've got quite a lot of different influences uh, from from your own life musically. That's right. Yeah, yeah, quite a lot. Quite a lot. And I try to I try to um, give equal time to all of those things. I, I like to think that it's uh, made me fairly varied in what I will listen to. Um, so yeah, I, I like to try and keep it varied. Nice. And did your family, uh, you know, as they moved down here, did they did they explore the county a lot? Did, was it sort of holidays on the beach in Minehead or? That's such a good question. I'll be honest. Um, when when I was very small, my dad had had uh, when my mum was pregnant with me. My dad had been involved in a, a huge accident, um, an explosion which nearly killed him, and it, it left him housebound for um, for a, a really long time. And uh, to cut a long story short, he he did recover in time mostly um his eyesight was and his hearing were, were permanently affected but actually to all intents and purposes he got super super fit again and he, he was well but there was a long period of my young childhood where we didn't actually go very far and we didn't have a lot of money mm. um so we didn't explore very far we did used to bundle into a, an estate car and, and go to the beach and i i think my earliest memories if we were going to the beach um, it would have either meant somewhere like Western or Breen or Minehead, or it might have meant if uh, travelling to somewhere like Woolacombe. We used to go there quite early on. So I suppose it, it partly depended on how long mum and dad thought they could put up with us all in the car. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, so we used to go to lots of local ones. And funnily enough, with with lockdown only just starting to relax now um my, my wife and i cara we we love to spend time by the sea and um and we just went to breen the other day for the first time in absolutely years and we, we normally go to the beach for surfing and for coast walks and things like that yeah. and breen isn't somewhere that we go very often it's not perhaps known for um for surf or for swimming in the sea or anything like that but it is actually that there's a beautiful headland there and a, a nice little walk so so it's, it's nice to keep it local sometimes it's true um when when did you first pick up the guitar and think you know this could be for me i can remember this actually it wasn't me that picked it up and thought this could be for me my dad told me it was going to happen basically <laughs> <laughs> my my dad was something of a of a pushy parent when I was younger, only in the effect that um, he he loved music so much. He really wanted to educate me in in the ways of the Beatles and things like that. And when I showed a little bit of interest, it, it didn't take long before um, he dug. My dad didn't have a lot of um, luxury when he was growing up. But the one thing that he, he retained from his, I suppose, early teens, his um, his mum and dad had bought for him uh, this Rosetti Solid 7 electric guitar. And if anyone here fancies Googling it, please do. Um, it's an amazing looking thing. I've still, well, we still have it. It's on my, my uh, old bedroom wall at my dad's house. 
and he gave my, my one of my my favourite primary school teacher, Miss Gale, had decided to do guitar lessons. So me and my mate Alan thought we'd go along for it, and everyone else turned up with these little baby Spanish guitars things and i turned up with this honestly have a look at the rosetti solid seven it is out of this world and uh and yeah it, people were a little confused by where i'd got this thing from um and the strings were so high that the action on it was so high there must have been about a centimeter off the fret so trying to play any kind of chord was like pressing on cheese wise it was yeah. and it hadn't been restrung for decades i didn't have a clue what i was doing and nor did my dad frankly so um so that was it we used to go at lunch times every thursday i think it was to um to do half an hour of learning how to play nursery rhymes and things and then i just never stopped really after that fab did you uh did you kind of get into um the the band scene did you kind of uh start playing with other people when did that begin to happen yeah in 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 primary school uh i think there were a couple of attempts at a band um but none of us could actually play anything at that point so i think the idea in in my i suppose a lot of lot of small children uh, want to be rock stars but i kind of knew that i wanted to do something musical um fairly seriously from quite early on um and when I got to secondary school, quite quickly, you get to find out who the musicians are. By the time we got to year nine, I guess it would have been, a couple of us had started to get together in one of the music rooms and, and have rehearsals there after school sometimes. So it it was it was sort of a constant, listening was a constant, playing at home was a constant from very small um, from being a very small child, I guess I was around 13 when I actually started to jam with, with other people. Um, the, I think the first band name that we settled on at, in school was the Fur Kettles. Nice. Which were named after, I I should Google this really, I don't think it's false. Um, the the There had been a Tiddlywinks champion, world champion, called Cecil Fur Kettle. So that could be nonsense, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure we. It, uh, I'm pretty sure I've I've seen that written down somewhere. Anyway, someone else came up with the idea, and we thought the fur kettles would be uh, would be kind of cool. So that was that was the first kind of thing we did. And then those of us that have been in a band at school took that on to college, uh, where we studied popular music, and then from there those those guys all split up and went our separate ways for university but i then went on to study commercial music in bath yeah which is why i'm here so many years later mm -hmm. and the band scene sort of continued really what were your uh, sort of um the, the bands that you wanted to emulate back in you know back in secondary school was that sort of mid late 90s yeah i guess it would have been i mean we did have a fairly varied range of stuff that we listened to but mostly it would have been brit brit pop i suppose it would have been blur oasis we certainly played a lot of those sorts of tunes um who else did we play i mean there was a little bit of american rock in there we, we used to listen to a lot of nirvana but we were more into the kind of brit pop scene mm -hmm. there was some cooler shaker we used to cover um yeah lots lots of great 90s bands there's uh, embrace mm -hmm. uh, oh we we were um 
enormous Radiohead fans. That was a huge thing for us. But I don't think we ever we we covered a couple of their songs when we were younger. But we never oh, yes. dreamt of actually trying to sound like them. You know, it's it's tricky covering Radiohead. That it's uh, yeah yeah it's a exactly, little bit more technical exactly than, right than a couple of guitars and some drums. Quite, quite yeah. But we gave it a go for a while. Yeah, I I remember at that time um, just being mostly addicted to Steve Lamack and Joe Wiley on the evening session on Radio yeah. 1 just uh and a, a few years ago they did they sort of did a reunion the anniversary of Britpop and uh just hearing their voices on the radio was so nostalgic uh yeah i caught a bit of that that yeah yeah brings back lots of memories of uh you know teenage aspirations of of rock and roll hood <laughs> That's right, and there's so many. When when you hear those, um, I I caught some of that, and there's so many bands that you forget about. Um, Elastica and Sleeper, and who did I just think of a minute ago? I was listening to Dodgies today, actually, for the first time in ages. Brilliant. I don't know particularly why they popped into my head. Uh, Terrorvision. I mean, God, there are, these are just literally a handful, but there were so many great bands back then yeah. that were that were all doing really cool things skunk and nancy another one mm -hmm. yeah tons of them yeah i remember uh my brother and i um we were staying with our grandparents and uh sharing a room listening to the radio kind of late into the night and uh i think it was mark radcliffe playing a bunch of tracks from echo belly's album on which was echo belly yeah i mean you never hear about them in the kind of no. the 90s revival but it was you know it's a really well put together album. Yeah, they were they were good. They were a good band. I'm trying to think. We did cover one of their songs, and I can't remember for the life of me what it was called. Anyway, it was very good. <laughs> they were a great band. Yeah, I probably need to dig some of those old classics out again at some point. Absolutely. Um, being being Somerset born and bred, of course, and being a musician, Glastonbury is uh, sort of mecca for you, or, or something along yes. those lines. Um, yeah. What What was the first Glastonbury that you, you went to? Well, to be perfectly honest, my my first memories of Glastonbury were of disappointment that I wasn't there. So somehow um, my, my parents were pretty damn liberal when it came to, um, they'd had three girls who had survived growing up and, and were some years ahead of me. And they had decided that I was probably going to be all right. And they, they used to let me get away with a lot of things, probably a little younger than I should do. But for some reason, Glastonbury was just never one of those things. And I can remember being back in school. So it must have been like 14, 15, when all my mates, most of them who had very, very straight laced parents, they must have been, I don't know what they were telling them they were doing, but they all started going to Glastonbury. This is back when you could jump the fence relatively easy. So I had mates that were going back when we were really, really young and I never made it. I used to watch it on TV and then I couldn't watch it on TV because it just upset me that I wasn't there. So I never really got what it was all about until um, the first one I went to was actually in 2005. It was the year that I finished uni and I was actually recording in a in a studio not far from Glastonbury, only a couple of miles down the road from it. And I finished in the studio on the Thursday and Cara picked me up and drove us to the festival and it was absolutely scorching hot and we having not been before we were ill prepared so we had all the wrong clothes we carried in way too much um 
booze and hadn't taken enough cash and all the all the things you could possibly get wrong we got wrong we were boiling hot on the first night and then when we woke up in the morning it was the year and i think it wouldn't be the first time that they've said it was the wettest year on record but this is the one that i've seen pictures of there were tents that were swept away and um there was uh people canoeing around the fields um <laughs> they had they brought canoes onto the site so that people could try and paddle to where they thought their tent was so that they could maybe have some chance of getting their belongings out it was horrendous and um the mud was just incredible and the i didn't have welly boots i had doc martin so my feet were in a terrible <laughs> state um, it should have been horrendous, and in some ways, I guess it was. But it was also amazing. It was just brilliant. Uh, we um, there's not many places where you can because we hadn't taken any cash back then. There was only two cash points on the whole site, and they were right next to each other. And or if there were any others, we certainly weren't aware of them. We queued for four hours for a cash point. That's something you don't do very often. But we did in the background get. Uh, Katie Tunstall, I think Baby Shambles, the Zootons. Like in the course of four hours, we listened to so many bands just yeah. while waiting to get uh, get some money out. It was amazing, um, and we got that weekend to see the White Stripes and the Killers and Coldplay, and um, Elvis Costello, and yeah, I mean it, it's it's just. It's just phenomenal. It's like nothing else on earth. I don't think there's many times in life where you could go through a weekend that, that is that grueling and where you are so physically beat up by the end of it and want to go back and do it all over again. <laughs> so uh, that was my first experience of yeah. it. And then we, we, we took a break for a couple of years and then for, I think it's four years in a row, we, we went, we went and um, in, in, you know, quick succession mm -hmm. and just had a ball. Awesome. Um, you mentioned earlier that you went, uh, you moved kind of from uh, from Taunton to Bath for university. Was was staying in the county uh, a conscious decision? Was there anything behind that beyond just it was a really good place to do a course? Uh, that's also a very good question. We what what did we decide on? Well. Cara's originally from Plymouth. I'm originally from Taunton. I think Bath for us is a is a good place to be, where you're not. It's not inaccessible for your family, um, but there is a little more going on than there were in either of our hometowns. Um, you've got London is a 90 minute train trip. You've got Bristol 20 minutes away, and Bristol's phenomenal. Um, it's just I think I mean I think it I think people do know how good Bristol is but I still think it's it's one of the country's unsung heroes when it comes to culture and music and all sorts of stuff I mm. I just absolutely love it. Uh Bath by comparison is um a little more conservative to say the least but it's still very cool there's still a lot going on there it's absolutely stunning of course and um and the pace of life is just a little bit different from the places that we had come from. Um we both enjoyed uni here. We'd put down roots a little bit. I don't know that there was ever a time when we said, let's stay. I think it was more the case that we were here. 
we didn't we weren't ready to leave it quite yet and then then the, then the years passed and, and we're still here now you just kind of fall in love with it and i've been here now i think about 17 years of my 37 so it's coming up for half my life really up here so always somerset but yeah quite a quite a big portion of it in in bath yeah So how soon after university did the centrefolds uh, come about? What Tell us a story about the, the sort of beginnings of, of that. Centrefolds, the seeds of, of that band. So I finished uni in 2005 and tried my luck at going solo for a while, which meant lots and lots of gigging in pubs. Uh, I wasn't prepared to sort of move to London and do the whole you know sofa surfing thing for the next few years so I, I did what I could from from um, from my house just contacting people and playing in l countless pubs I was always always busy at the weekends and that was getting kind of lonely and around uh, and there was a, a period as I say in 2005 I was working with a with a manager on some solo material that we thought might take off but that kind of fizzled out before it got anywhere by 2007 I think I was kind of I'd finally finished recording an album of my own but by then I was already burnt out and I'd, I'd kind of had I didn't want to drive around the country anymore on my own and there was no no signs no obvious signs of anything um any any results coming through and I went for I asked a couple of friends to go for a jam one night and uh was Martin uh who would go on to become the centerfolds drummer and a couple of other mates Blair Chadwick and Spencer Page um both of whom are still in band Spencer's in the heavy and Blair um has been playing with uh, a, a songwriter they they're kind of they're based all over the country. Blair runs a brilliant, another brilliant podcast called Blair's Blues and Other News, and they're in a band called Steepways. Um, but the it kind of didn't take off that night, but it, it was enough to get me hooked, and I knew that I wanted to do more. And Martin was up for it, and we started... You know you're getting old when you start to reference places that don't exist anymore. There was a tiny, tiny, tiny... Uh, dark dank recording uh, rehearsal studio rather uh, behind the Odeon in Bath City Centre and we used to rehearse there with another friend Matt and um, I think it was a long time before we got any good but we enjoyed it and we I can remember sitting around the table coming up with the name centrefolds was was one of, we had a list of about 50 names and we argued until everything else on the list wasn't there anymore and we arrived at centrefolds um, and yeah, it kind of grew from from there. Really, we started to gig. We got another band member. Um, we started to get a bit of a following. Admittedly, mostly friends and family to begin with, and play all all the local smaller music haunts. And then we we started to get good, and then we were we became able to pitch for bigger and better gigs, and we started to play at festivals, and and it really expanded from there. 
you you recently posted uh, on your Instagram kind of a, a few um, a few of the highlights and lowlights from from that period of time. Um, one story in particular that that sort of begs asking questions about, which is the uh, the Cheddar Gorge story. <laughs> of all the things that we did, and you've you, you've picked that one out, brilliant. Okay, yes. Um, Wow, yeah, we we played in a. I'm not going to name the establishment because they were they were lovely. They're really really sweet people. Um, we were asked to go and play there. We we hadn't contacted them, um, but somehow they got our details. They asked us to go and play one Friday night, so we drove down there, and we we all ate. There was the band, and there was a there was quite a big group of of our supporters came down with us that night. And the, the set up of the pub was such that they basically had, if the pub was a rectangle, they'd had an extension put on the outside of the pub, which was just a bigger rectangle, but they hadn't taken out the original walls. So we were, we were in the corner of the big rectangle, if you like, just playing to a corner wall. <laughs> so there was people off in one direction to the right, uh, and there was people off to, in a, in uh, in the other direction to the left and it was just the weirdest gig because all the people in the pub were in the little rectangle and I guess our music must have been getting round the walls and getting to them somehow but no one could stand in front of us really and the and the most hilarious thing about it was of the one party that we could see that hadn't come with us um, it was a bunch of old older guys who were playing pool and, and darts and things and one of them was just steadily falling asleep as the evening went on and he was just he was just getting closer and closer and closer to the table and it was just we just we were just sort of looking at each other and we, we had we had a ball we had a hilarious night um yeah we, it was funny and and this is the thing you do you get to play some really really hilarious and some really terrible gigs um when when you're in a band and that that was that was fun we we got to laugh it off yeah but you get the highlights as well so um you mentioned yeah. that as a as a sort of attendee uh you'd been you know fairly uh, consistent at going to Glastonbury and you you managed to kind of be on the other side of the fence yeah yeah that's right we um yeah, so we got to play Glastonbury. We played a, a couple of slots uh, on one of the small stages. Um, getting to play Glastonbury is very, very, very difficult. I think it becomes even more difficult as time goes on because there are just there's just an increasing number of bands as as instruments and recording gear and things become more accessible. The music world becomes more and more saturated, so it's it's difficult to get through. But, but by some miracle, one year we we did get through, and we played a stage called the Fluffy Rock Cafe, and it was a a big marquee. We think there must have been about three hundred people in there. Um, we played an evening slot in there, and we played at the same stage. We played a, a lunchtime slot in there. Both of them were absolutely rammed it was the coolest 
um we've played to bigger crowds at other festivals but in terms of the atmosphere and just the people being absolutely crammed in shoulder to shoulder and it wasn't even raining they were there because they wanted to be that's a that's <laughs> that's that's amazing um but yeah it was it was great fun it was so much fun um it was it was really hard work uh playing glastonbury particularly when you're not famous is not easy because the getting your gear in and out is a nightmare to be honest there's no easy way of doing it they, they you're all right dropping your gear off but getting it out after the show is um there's no vehicles or anything so we we walked the the parking space we had reserved as performers must have been a good couple of miles away and we had to carry guitars and cymbals and all oh. sorts of stuff through it and you don't get any help for that stuff so that was a a mammoth adventure um but you know we i mean it's a bit I think the smaller bands get forgotten a little bit by the by the organisers, but you get to play Glastonbury and then you get to talk about it for the rest of your life. So, you know, swings and roundabouts. But it was great fun. Great fun. Yeah. And does it have any sort of additional significance, the fact that, you know, it is sort of your home festival, as it were, being, being from the county? Yeah, I think it does. I mean, I think that um, I, I can't, work out if our views of Glastonbury are distorted by the fact that we live near it uh, because we all I mean I think it's like the biggest fest music festival in the world or certainly one of them but it just seems so crazy that it's it's literally down the road where I live at the moment is just over 20 miles away from it but the site is so big and so noisy that on Glastonbury weekend we can hear the thrum of the music you can't you couldn't tell what bands are playing but you can hear it especially when if the wind blows mm. in the right direction sometimes you can hear actual sections of songs and it's 20 odd miles away that's how big it is and that's how close it is um and so to be able to play at even though we were only on you know proportionately a, a tiny stage it was still an amazing time at the world's probably most famous current music festival that happens to be in our home county and that that did have enormous significance we, we'll never forget that in fact I, I think in our house at least half of the photos that we have up around the place of our friends are from that are from the weekends we spent at Glastonbury not necessarily that one but just that festival there's mm. something about it that's really magical yeah and so you went from you know behind the Odeon and Bath to playing at Glastonbury in the space of what four years? Yeah, roughly. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Exactly right. So, I mean, at that point, yeah, when you put it like that, at that point, uh, you know, you're kind of what was that late twenties, early thirties for you? At, at sort of 2011, kind of. Yeah, uh, yeah, it would have been 20, 28 in, yeah. two, in 2011, I think. I've got that right. And yeah. so, so you're kind of on this upward trajectory as a band. You're you know, supporting uh, big names at the time, right? Yeah, we did. We did support some big names. So uh, we, we also missed out on a few. Um, but yeah, we, we managed to get some really good support slots. So we, we managed to impress some pretty good national um promoters so it's it's less about a lot of the time it seems 
impressing the bands that you're supporting but gigs are generally put on by promoters people whose job it is to get everything to happen and to sort out the support acts and things like that and we managed to um to get on on the books with some really good promoters and we ended up supporting we played some um some great festivals um we supported the 1975 and uh top loader was another one um who else did we support there's quite a few there's there's quite a few biggish ones and acts that were on their way up there's a couple of acts that were on their way down as well unfortunately but um but were still big names and um i was gutted to i'd completely forgotten that we we turned down a um a support slot at one point with leanne le havas who is amazing and currently absolutely killing it and there was dutch uncles as well we we um cancelled on I, I think i've got that right um so yeah so as big six music listeners we'd be listening to bands that were just sort of coming up through the ranks and a little bit different and then occasionally we get to support them so yeah we we did some some really cool stuff oh the coronas was another big one who i hadn't come across um before we played with them but i was talking to some irish friends who were who thought i'd um who thought i was confused because they're absolutely massive they're not as well known over here but they're absolutely huge in in ireland and uh, we actually supported them a few times and got quite friendly with them and um uh, only at the gigs we didn't stay in touch afterwards and we, we um they're just really really lovely guys and that was that was really nice because i've got lots of family and in, in, in ireland um it was it's just it's a little box to tick for me so, yeah so that was cool nice and, and so what's what's kind of going through your mind at that point where uh you know things are are happening you know little by little and you're you know you're getting these uh these gigs what what do you sort of what did you see as the future of of the band at that point i think there was a time when it felt like our stars were aligning and we there was a real peak from i guess around about the time we played glastonbury and for a few years um a, a couple of years around that we just seemed to be getting everything that we pitched for so we were getting the amazing support slots we were getting lots of festivals obviously we got glastonbury we were getting played on six music um we eventually we we got played on uh, on the Dermot O'Leary show and and we ended up getting our music on some TV shows as well which was cool and for a minute there it really felt like wow this this could actually become a thing i mean i don't think any of us really knew what we had never expected to get really big um to to become famous i should say and which is just as well because we weren't disappointed um, at the end of it all. But <laughs> um, but we when it was happening, I think you're just kind of in the moment and enjoying it. But it, it really did feel for a moment like, well, everything is on the up and up. So it looks like we're, we're just going to keep going. And who knows where that's going to end when 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 you're sat on um, on a bed uh, in Italy on on holiday with your mum and she's talking to Dermot O'Leary uh, <laughs> on Radio 2 during his show. It was a, my my dad actually had managed to to 
to get us onto the show. And my mum was having a phone call with them at O'Leary and then he played one of our tracks afterwards. It was a feature they were doing called Some Mothers Do Indie. And when stuff like that is happening and, and that's not even the biggest thing that's happened in the last year for the band, that's just an amazing feeling. That was that was peak centrefolds, I think. We had a lot of good stuff happen after that, but I think that period was was um was really good. Yeah. Um but then it, uh, yeah, we we did then have we went through some difficult times shortly after that as well. Mm. How how soon after that peak was it that uh, that Alex started becoming ill? Um, you have to forgive me now. I forget the exact timeline of when he started to become ill. Poor old Alex, our our bass player, Alex McLean. Um, he developed a brain tumour and I'll never forget the the day it was diagnosed we were due to play um, in the Thatch in Croyd if you know that in North Devon which is one of our favourite spots to play we used to go down there just for fun and play at the weekends and and get very drunk and surf not at the same time and um, he he ended up in hospital that weekend and it was a it felt like a very long few years of him receiving treatment and then beating it and we we were back at Glastonbury as punters shortly after his first major operation the doctors said look you you're looking in pretty good shape it'll be good for you you need something to look forward to um and that just seems crazy now but he sadly in in time um the tumors came back and um and he wasn't able to fight it off and we had some very 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 good friends come and graciously stand in uh, for Alex and Alex would try and come to the gig sometimes when he could but he was too poorly to to play at that point and uh he died a little over 5 years ago now um about 5 and a half years ago and like I said, the, the, that that period was very, it felt very long and very difficult. And it has, you know, and he's still very much a part of the Centrefolds family. We are, his family, um, we we love dearly. And, uh, you know, his 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 wife who's who's now moved on and, and has um she has a, a child with Alex and she's now moved on and met a, a lovely fellow who's been adopted into the family and they have a, a child together as well um lots of good things eventually come out of these terrible terrible times um but it you know while you while you're going through it it's, it's really tough and as a band you know on that subject obviously clearly while all of this is happening the band is very much not the most important thing in the equation um, but on that topic, um, we just didn't really know what to do. To be honest, it's it's very difficult when 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 one of you is has such an uncertain future and then eventually goes through the the final stages and 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 dies. You know how how what do you do after we weren't in the mood to get back on with it afterwards and then eventually when we decided we were because we were damn sure he would have wanted us to get on with it and we we knew that because i think he probably told us um and so we we kind of picked picked things up again a a little while after very quietly we didn't gig for a while but it's very difficult to get the momentum back at that point because 
for a long time your heart's not in it um so it took us a long time to recover from that and i guess that's that's as it should be that's how that's just real life isn't it really unfortunately yeah you you called it the centerfolds family um and yes you know as a band you kind of you know you go through everything together you spend so much time together it does feel like an extended part of that family and and you you have to go through the same grieving process as a as a biological family does yeah absolutely and and i mean we were we were all so close uh, we are still uh, all all so close um you become when you're in a band especially when you form a band and you're in your mid to late 20s and you first get together those gigs become your social scene so in the early days when we were playing um well whether whether it was particularly if it was a local gig if it was somewhere around here we we even when we were doing okay and we were getting some quite big gigs um we really loved to play places like there's somewhere called the wonder bar in midsummer norton which was one of martin our drummer's original haunts and it's tiny and your feet would stick to the floor and it always smelt a bit questionable and it was just a proper rock venue and we loved it we loved playing down there and we'd take we'd get so many um friends and family and then as time went on and we got a bit more of a name for ourselves we'd have other you know strangers turn up coming to actually watch the band which was a strange sensation and these become your your social scene you know we we made so many friends during that period that we are friends with now because of the band because of those days and before the band started to have children um you know all all of our wives or girlfriends would be out with us as well so it was everyone it was everyone we'd have members of family turning up and then if we went to play we used to play quite a lot in london um wherever possible we'd hire not hire we would we'd pay to stay somewhere and the whole band plus girlfriends and anyone else we could squeeze in we'd all go up together and we'd all we'd all stay in these places and make a real night of it and you know eat and drink in london and and have a a great time so it was it was very very much a family um and still is absolutely you're you're kind of back to uh doing more of your own music now um where is where does the inspiration come from for you kind of right now having been through uh that sort of creative process as part of a band where how does it differ as as someone kind of doing your own thing inspiration's been an interesting topic over the last few years both for the band and solo for lots of different reasons because the thing is your your life's change as you as you as you well as you live as you as long as you're on the planet you know things happen that are different to you so the rest of the band all have children now we all have or i've actually just made some some changes in my life but up until very recently we all had um quite senior jobs uh whereas when we started in the band we were doing jobs that we you know we weren't taken very seriously we were all very junior not getting paid very much so a lot more of your focus goes on that i think in terms of the inspiration for what we what we do as a band we started to turn more and more to politics um an interesting thing for me has been as as one of the songwriters in the band over time you know when you are 
you've been married for some time and and actually life is good and you're in a house that you love and you've got the money that you need and things like that it's kind of harder to write authentically about heartbreak or hard times without reflecting on times past so I know for me certainly when I've recorded um recently at things on my own that's what I've been doing is looking back to older times and in fact when when I had the time to record a bit of stuff on my own I picked up some really old songbooks and actually picked up songs that I'd written 12 13 years ago and started playing around with those so it's the same same songs yeah. really um but actually I mean to to then take it down a slightly different path I have been recently uh, working with a friend of mine on some ideas and and really they are at this point in time just the the germs of an idea but really really quite interesting we were talking about you know what what do we what do we want to lyrically where do we want to go with this and and we thought that what we wanted to do is to take rather than try to make it about um you know absolute heartbreak or unnecessarily about super political issues and things that actually just real life presents you every day with little moments of beauty and how can we tap into that how can we um, look at the smaller moments and maybe get some inspiration from that you know just the little moments you especially you know with lockdown where we haven't been able to move around as freely but each day we go out walking I'm fortunate enough to live out in the countryside and we go out for a walk most days um, down country lanes and, and things and, and sometimes you just stop and it's quiet and you're staring at a river and you'll notice things that you never saw before even though you've been there a million times before and we are teaching ourselves really to to try and take inspiration from those smaller moments and and to stop trying so hard to catastrophize for the sake of a song if that makes any sense absolutely yeah um i mentioned before we started recording that it would be great at some point to uh, potentially play a clip um of one of your more recent uh pieces uh yeah so i i don't know what you're going to pick but why don't you introduce something for us Great. Okay. Wow. I would love to hear a track that we recorded. It was um, our most recent release, I think, and one that because we had so much going on in our lives, I feel that we never gave enough of a song and dance about, but I was really, really proud of it. Um, a song called Control Z. I'd love to hear a little bit of that. All right. Here it is. Spit second when you wake up, you know Something went down last night Start sweating as the memories flow To my brain from my heart So coming back in slow motion I remember in the dark A conversation, your revelation My palpitations I wish you could push control Said Do all the 
alongside music, you mentioned um, you know you've had a corporate career, and on your blog you write really honestly about the the internal tension um, between the corporate and the creative that you've had to face. Um, h- how has that kind of played out quite recently? Yeah, uh, I was working in the investments industry for twelve years, a decade of that at the same company, and there was a long period in my life where that served me really well and it was i think the right place to be and i was i have i'm very fortunate to have had some good times in that there was a point a few years ago where i started to realize that i was less comfortable in it and i think on reflection it had just run its course it had ceased to be as useful to me as i needed it to be bearing in mind that i am I I had spent my life up until that point working purely in uh, on creative things, so on music basically. But I'd spent my time, you know, I, I studied like performing arts at, at uni. I've always been much more interested in creating art of any kind. And then one day you go to a, a recruitment agency, and because you just need some money and something to pay the bills. They put you in a job and then 12 years later, you, you've been there and you've made a whole career out of it. And I was fortunate enough to do uh, reasonably well, which I'm, I'm super grateful for. But there, there came a point a few years ago where I started to feel like I shouldn't be here anymore. And as it happens, the company I worked for was going through a particularly challenging time, which lasted quite a long time. Um, and and uh, I think they're coming out the other side of that now, which is great, filled with lots and lots of lovely people. But for me, who it was taking extra energy each day, frankly, just to to show up and seem interested as, as my passion for it was dissolving, um, to then go through the actual day-to-day stresses of what was just a, a genuinely stressful environment, I was, it was becoming too much for me and I was experiencing stress and started to I, I I have suffered intermittently through my life with depression and towards the end of my time in my old job it was that was knocking at the door and it was um I was just starting to feel really unwell to be perfectly honest as leaving a job is not the easiest thing in the world to do when you are a used to it and b quite fond of the money but I knew that it was time to go I should have made a decision sooner really but I didn't but at the start of this year I went in on the first day back and the company were making some changes and I was one of a handful of people who was offered the option of redundancy and it just felt like great that was the the last signal that I needed that it's time to go and do the other things that I'd been wanting to do um so I I had been writing a blog on and off really it's I wasn't quite sure where I wanted to go with it but I've been writing more and more about the issues of mental health it's something I'm I'm interested in but I'm also I've been frustrated by how little people are comfortable particularly in employment settings are comfortable talking about it and I'm not suggesting by the way um, that the company I worked for 
uh, are not happy talking about it, but it's true to say that it's something where in all companies there is far, far too little training and it's not something we talk about easily and it's something people are embarrassed to talk about and it's just a cultural thing. It's not a company thing, um, I, I think. So I was starting to, to write more and more about it and I, I decided that I was uh, perhaps going to turn it into a book as well as the blog and maybe maybe see where else I could take it because whenever I write about it or talked about it um, people would come to me and said they found it useful um, and that it was helping them so when the option came to leave my job I, I actually decided not to go and hunt for another job but to spend some time writing the book that I had been curious about and Actually, my blog is very neglected at the moment because I've been putting my energy into the book. But I've I've really I've decided to just kind of lean into that and um, and look at mental health, not from a professional point of view, because I'm not a a medical professional of any kind, but from and someone who experiences it from their point of view and just trying to normalize the conversation. Um, and of course, I've, I've obviously got music in the background there as well and, and some other bits. So just decided it was I've turned 37 this year. I am still young enough to make a success of something else, but I need to start it sometime. So it may as well be now. And the other thing that, uh, that you sort of do or, or have done, um, which I guess plays into that is the sort of coast path uh exploring hiking whatever you want to call it um yes those those types of walks um at least in my experience are ones where you sort of get great clarity because you're confronted with you know not just your own uh trying trying to get through the walk but also you get to see the ocean you get to see nature um you get just the clarity of air uh how important has that been in in this sort of getting that clarity for you as well oh massively massively important in fact the book that i thought that i was going to write now was a book purely based on the southwest coast path and kind of looking at at it both um practically speaking and metaphorically speaking as the journey from where I was at the time we started walking it last a year ago last June uh, when I was feeling pretty beat up I was stressed depressed anxious and um, booking myself in for therapy and things I'd been I'd been in a quite a tough place and we discovered that you could walk all the way around from Minehead to uh, in in North Somerset to Poole in Dorset all the way around the foot of Cornwall without stopping um not that you do it all in one go of course but it is 630 miles and um and it was just it was just a phenomenal idea i felt like i needed a physical challenge and we we started picking off sections at random we weren't doing it in the right order um we didn't know at first how seriously we were going to take it but it fast became really important to both me and to Kara, really and for me personally on the on the mental health side of it i mean for the one thing it's something to look forward to at the weekend because it stops you particularly if you're someone who has gotten quite low in depression and you have a tendency to um 
to become quite mopey at times um because you can't help it because that's just where you are and knowing that you have this thing that you have to get up and do and you have to leave the house quite early because some of them take a quite you know several hours to walk and you want to do it in daylight so there's some preparation involved and you have to plan out the lunch that you want to carry with you and that's kind of it's a it's a really healthy distraction literally speaking and the endorphins that get flowing once you're out there and you, the physical act of walking anywhere is a good thing for you i'm writing about this increasingly at the moment just the act of walking but actually some of those um some of those stretches and in fact a, a somerset stretch in particular um in exmoor the the minehead to porlock weir which officially speaking is the first leg of the the southwest coast path there i don't know if they've repaired this if they're even able to repair it but th this is what they don't tell you is that there are parts of the coast path there's there's almost never any fences to or banisters or anything to lean on you are out there with nature and there are two parts of that particular walk you can opt to go one of two ways the more strenuous path or severe path i should say or the slightly easier one that's inland we went for the, the severe one and there's two sections where the path literally ceases to be there and you have to step over a void which goes down into the sea, uh, you know, down into the cliffs and things over onto the other bit of the path. And that I don't believe was in the guidebook, um, <laughs> which it, maybe it should be. It, it may be a more recent, maybe there's been a slight landslide, but you know, you are, it's not what most people would consider to be an extreme sport, but it is most definitely not just a walking hobby. It's a lot more than that. And some sections are really, really grueling. There's actual, um, you know, climbing up and down quite steep paths and, and some really dangerous bits. There's also some easy bits as well. I recommend that people start on some of the easier ones. But the distraction, my physical fitness was going up. Cara and I were having better conversations because we weren't just confined to the house. We were getting out and we were inspired by things. And we'd make plans for the first time in years where we had perhaps become a bit... Um, burdened with certain things around us in our lives we began to have great conversations again about the adventures we want to have and the places we want to go and and what what's next when we finish this where shall what should we do and it's just been phenomenal um the only reason i'm not writing purely about that right now is because i realized when i sat down and started writing that book i realized that i kind of needed to tell the story of how i got to my lowest ebb in order for that to make sense mm -hmm. so the southwest coast path will feature it does I'm, I'm at that point now in the writing i've nearly completed the the first draft but that will certainly feature in it but actually the first part of the story is about how easy it is to lose your identity when trying to fit into a corporate environment that doesn't serve you mm. um because i see it a lot in in people and it really does have i, I think people's assumption that they are trapped within a job can be so detrimental to mental health and i recommend that people explore their options and don't feel that it's the only job that they're ever going to have um and yeah get out and have a good walk um because it's it's great for freeing the mind and giving you some ideas and getting your confidence back and you've also started your everyday problems podcast as well um sort of yes. as you know, you've got the walking, the book, the blog and the podcast as well, all covering 
similar ground, but kind of complementary. That's right. Yeah. So a, a friend um, around about the same time, I suppose, I started, it might have been a little bit later on in the coast path, but towards the end of last year, a friend at work suggested that I go for a coffee with her fiance, uh, who is a lovely fella. He was having a bit of a tough time and she knew that I was comfortable talking about depression and mental health and things and she thought it would be a good idea for us maybe just to go and have a catch-up so we neither of us quite knew what we were there for but quite quickly we got chatting and myself and, and Liam um, got on really well found that we're f- relatively fearless when it comes to tackling the topic of mental health and after a couple of conversations we decided that we should turn it into a podcast and and after some debate we decided that while mental health in itself is so important to try and understand a little better for all of us that actually mental health is very much the product of the world around us and that it isn't just all about your brain or the the chemicals in your brain um but it's it's so much more than that it's about the life that you're living and so we decided to open it up we're not just going to be talking about mental health we called it the everyday problems podcast because we wanted to talk about things like i hate my job or redundancy or grief or homelessness or lots and lots of different things and the idea is that um we we don't pretend to have all the answers but by having conversations about it and inviting guests on to talk to us we can perhaps um, enlighten people as to what their options are and help people you know to know where they could go and better educate themselves on certain topics if they want to be more helpful in a particular area maybe you could go and try this whatever it might be so that's what we're doing we've been recording it now for well several months but just with real life um in between um it's taken us quite a long time to put all the episodes together so there's two episodes live at the moment there's another two in the can which we hope to make live soon and that's been that's been really good fun uh learning to edit sound it remotely in lockdown has been a bit of a challenge um as you will find out (laughs) at the end of this uh, podcast (laughs) Uh, but you know you get there and I think at the moment people are fairly forgiving on that front because they kind of get it yeah um yeah and and I've become as I'm sure Lewis you are as well I've become just a great fan of podcasts in general I mean we we when we discovered the southwest coast path we wanted something Cara and I to listen to in the car that would engage us for a little bit so that we were both sharing the experience and you know stop whoever wasn't driving from just sitting on their phone or something like that and we turned on the Adam Buxton podcast because people have been talking about it for ages. Adam Buxton is now a part of our Southwest Coast Path experience. He is there yeah. on the way to and from every walk. You know, he's, he's if it's when we run out of that, we, there's others we want to move on to. But um, I just think podcasts are a great way of um, hearing other people's voices, really, other people's opinions mm-hmm. on it. So, uh, so that was why I was really chuffed when when you got in touch because this is a, a wonderful project that you, you you're undertaking. My pleasure. Great. Okay. <laughs> um, right. 
I haven't actually written an intro for this bit, so let's just ad lib and, and go for it. Right, Tom, <laughs> go Tom it. before we wrap things up, um, we are going to, you're going to be our first ever contestant in the Somerset Stories original game, which we are calling Somerset Levels. Um, now, I'm so excited about this. <laughs> uh, so for, for the benefit of our listeners, um, the game show reference of this is Bruce Forsyth's Play Your Cards Right. In, in this hat... Uh, I have about 20 pieces of paper, and in, on each of them is written a, uh, a location in Somerset. Um, and it is your job as the player um, to guess whether the next card I pull out will be higher or lower than the previous location. So the first one you get a freebie, um, which is Wells Cathedral, uh, which stands 387 feet above sea level. Now, before you guess, I'm going to give you uh, a little bit of context. The lowest place I have in this, this hat is, uh, is Clevedon Pier, uh, which I put in at zero, okay. zero feet. Although it's, you know, it's, a, it's a high building, if you can call a pier a building. Um, the highest place is, um, I believe it's around 1,700 feet above sea level, um, which is a place on Exmoor called Dunkery Beacon. Highest place in Somerset. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Well, I didn't either before I, before I started putting this together. <laughs> so, so your kickoff card is Wells Cathedral, which is at 387 feet. Is the next card going to be higher okay. or lower? Lower. Lower. The county ground in Taunton, your hometown, which hey. stands at 50 feet above sea level. That's pretty low. Well, That's quite that? low. I'd like, I'd like to think that you've been around and measured each of these individually no, for I, yourself. Do you know just what? There's, there's a little like... map that I went to online, which is a topographic map, <laughs> and you can point, point the cursor anywhere, and it'll tell you how, far, how high it is. Great. So, county ground, 50 feet. Next location, higher or lower? Higher. Right. Oh, my goodness. Shapwick Heath. The RSPB uh, place, which is right in the middle of the summer levels, is 21 feet above sea level. So I'm sorry, Tom. Ugh, you sc- what a chance. You score one on episode one. Uh, so we're going to have to have you back to talk about a whole bunch of other things, um, but also to get a higher score on Somerset levels. I'm going to go and do my homework. I'll, <laughs> I'll be driving around Somerset with a, I don't know, even know what, what tools you need, you require I, for I this. I have no idea either. Um, Thank you so much for your time, for giving up uh, your, your evening to spend time with us. Where, where can people find Pleasure. you if they want to find out more about uh, you and the work that you're doing, the stuff that you're writing, the music that you're producing? Sure. Um, I'd be so grateful if people wanted to find me. Uh, that, that's very kind. Uh, if, I, I suppose the easiest place, if you're on Instagram, uh, then if you search for at Tom Corneal, T-O-M-C-O-R-N-E-I-L-L, that will take you to my page. And, and to be honest, my Instagram account is the one that talks about all of the different things that I'm doing. So it's got a little bit of the music. It's got a little bit of the book. It's got a little bit of of, um, of, of lots of different things, lots of uh, the pictures of the coast path and things like that. But you can also go straight to my website, which is TomCorneal.com. Uh, those are probably the best places to find me. The podcast itself, um, you can find the link from Instagram. If you click on the bio link on Instagram, it's currently hosted on a site called Podbean. 
Uh, but it should be on the uh, the Apple Podcast app in the very near future as well. So look out for it on there. But if you head to Instagram, if you if you're on there, and go for at Tom Corneal, just about everything you can access from there. Tom, thanks for your time. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks so much, Lewis. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Somerset Stories. You can subscribe on Spotify, Google, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find us on Instagram at Somerset Stories, or email us, hello at somersetstories.com. See you next time.